This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 397. So many people are just reactionary to the life that they think they've been handed instead of stepping back and saying, wait a second, do I intentionally want to do this for my life, for my business, for my family? A remarkable positive consequence of the worldwide lockdown is the experiment it inherently created by everyone abruptly and continuously working from home and making their own schedules. The last year has proven to even the skeptics that work can be done differently. But will the change be permanent? Or will we, as usual, return to what we know? Will we allow the industrial mindset to continue to define our week? Or will we reinvent ourselves and our time? Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, a podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I'm here because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading has got to be a part of that plan. So each week, I interview a successful and inspiring author about their latest book and help bring you from it the key insights and main ideas. Today, we're going to chat with author Joe Sanok. He's written a new book called Thursday is the New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend Time Doing What You Want. Make sure you stay till the end of the show as I'll be sharing how you can win a copy of Joe's book. I'm going to quiz Joe about the history behind why we are where we are with regard to some of our work traditions what his research has uncovered about the factors that reliably predict success, how slowing down at work makes us more productive and even sparks greater creativity and focus, and lots more. I'd like to spark for you greater convenience, and along with that, I'll throw in saving you time and money. How am I going to do that? Well, it's not actually me. It's the wonderful people at our sponsor, ScriptCo, where they ask the question, wouldn't it be nice if your prescription meds arrived on time every month neatly packaged on your doorstep. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great if you were actually saving money for that convenience? Double yeah. Well, ScriptCo happens to be the first online pharmacy that gives you the power of wholesale medicine and home delivery. Trust me when I say it's a lot better than allowing insurance companies to decide what you should be paying. At ScriptCo, they simply cut out the middleman and give you all the power. I like the sound of that. They shop around for the absolute lowest price anywhere on the medicine you need without the insurance price hike, and then they send the best deal to your door. And with a ScriptCo membership, you save big with access to wholesale prices on your generic medications. You can even try it out to see how much you'd be saving when you check out their free savings calculator at ScriptCo.com. That's S-C-R-I-P-T-C-O. And because you listen to this show, you can save even more. Get $25 off your initial membership with the code READ25. That's R-E-A-D-2-5. What I'm ultimately trying to tell you is here's a chance for you to stick it to the man or the middleman, as it were. Go to scriptco.com, S-C-R-I-P-T-C-O.com, and get $25 off your membership with the code READ25. That's R-E-A-D-2-5. Joe Sanok is the host of the Practice of the Practice podcast, which is recognized, get this, as one of the top 50 podcasts worldwide with over 100,000 downloads every month. The competition has begun. Joe has issued the challenge. I've got some catching up to do now. Uh, best-selling authors, experts, and scholars, and business leaders and innovators are featured and interviewed in these 600-plus podcast episodes he's done over the what, last nine years, I think. Um, his new book, the one we're talking about today, is called Thursday is the New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, 
and spend time doing what you want. Sign me up. Joe, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, I'm so excited to be here. Well, uh, this book for me is impactful for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is these concepts are concepts in, in my circles. I've been trying to get people in traditional jobs to understand for a while. And I love the fact that the, these ideas are being discussed from someone who comes from an industry that is all about trading time for money. You're proving that even in an industry that thinks in that way and almost that way exclusively, that this is this is possible, that, that you can work less and make more. Uh, so I don't know if I, that's so much a question as much as it is you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to start an interview. <laughs> That's amazing. I think you're, I mean, you're, you're spot on right there. Uh, that as therapists, psychologists, counselors, the people that, uh, that's my formal training. Uh, so often we're stuck in this. I work for 45 to 50 minutes. I bill for 45 to 50 minutes and then I get paid for 45 to 50 minutes. And if I have a sick day, if my kids have to go to the dentist, I just don't get paid. If I want to go on vacation, vacation or work less, I also don't get paid. So not only do I have to pay for a vacation, I have to pay for losing all of that time. And it's just such a trap that so many people that are in professional services fall into. Yeah. And related to that, I, I want to start off by having you unpack a bit of the history behind why we are where we are, particularly with regard to some of our work traditions, not just time for money transactions, but also just the days that we work, the hours that we work, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm so glad you start there because I think whenever we're looking at reinventing society, when we're looking at deconstructing something, it's helpful to know how strong is that foundation? Is this something that's been here for a long period of time mm. or is this actually newer than maybe we thought? So when I when I started working on the book, uh, it wasn't even in the proposal to go into like time itself, but I was just interested in it. I started with a whiteboard and said, what are the questions that I have with new eyes? And one of them was, where'd we even get the seven day week? Where'd we get the 40 hour work week? Where did time as we see it right now even come from? And we have to go back several thousand years to the Babylonians. Uh, they looked up and they saw the sun and the moon. They saw the earth, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Jupiter, the seven brightest things in the sky <laughs> and that they were standing on. And they said, we should do a seven-day week. So the power brokers of Babylon thousands of years ago made up the seven-day week. Uh, the Egyptians had an eight-day week. The Romans had a 10-day week. I mean, we just as easily could have a five-day week and have 73 of those in a year. Uh, in nature, there's nothing that points to a seven-day week. You know, a year makes sense. That's what it takes to go around the sun. A day makes sense. That's how long it spins, you know, for a day. But there's nothing in nature that is a seven-day week. And so to just start with, this thing that for us is solid, the seven-day week, is completely made up. So let's fast forward to the late 1800s, early 1900s. The average person was working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week. I mean, it was a farmer's schedule, even if you weren't a farmer. You were just working all the time. So then in 1926, when Henry Ford, he at Ford Industries, decided to do a 40-hour work week, that was a giant step forward for the mm -hmm. evolution of people, the evolution of business, um, workers' rights, all sorts of things. It was needed at that time. Um, but for Ford, it was to sell more cars. Uh, he knew that people weren't going to buy a car to get to work faster. But if they had a weekend where they could go places, they could see friends and family, and it was faster than the horse and buggy, he knew people would, would actually buy cars from him when they worked for him. And so it worked and it took off across the nation. Mm -hmm. So less than 100 years ago, again, a power broker, Ford in Detroit, made up the 40-hour work week. 
So at the time, that was that was really needed. But then we see in the 1980s and 90s that Fridays really start to fade out of the work week. It's when we have you know baby showers at work. We do cheesy team building activities. We're thinking about our weekend. It's not as productive as Monday. Um, and so that industrialist mindset that we are machines, that we plug in, we set it and forget it, is starting to dissipate. And really, the pandemic of 2020 and 2021 revealed what was already going on. And that's that... The butts and chairs, the 40-hour work week, the Monday through Friday is not the key performance indicator we should be using. Uh, that That is the industrialist mindset saying you're a machine, you work for this period of time. And so now we see that as this post-pandemic generation, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, <laughs> post-pandemic generation, that there's this great resignation happening because people are getting asked to come back to work and to do work that they don't love. They've been able to see a different way of working and they have these industrialist bosses that aren't making that transition into the new evolutionary model. You mentioned the Ford example. Wasn't that preceded? I'm, I'm thinking back to early on in the book. Wasn't that preceded by a few decades by another company or industry where uh, there was a contingent of Jewish workers and Christian workers and the Jews wanted mm-hmm. Saturday off and the Christians wanted Sunday off. And so they just appeased them both and said, well, we'll give you both days off. Yeah, yeah. It was a place on the East Coast that that did that. They were just sick of people fighting with each other about which day they got (laughs) off. So they gave them both off. Unfortunately, they didn't have enough influence like Ford did to really make that kind of nationwide. And Mm. we even see in 1886, uh, the Haymarket uh, protests in Chicago, all of these people from Europe had come over to help rebuild Chicago after the fires. And they found that their, their work was actually worse for them in the United States than back in Europe. And so they started protesting and, Mm. you know, from May 1st to May 4th, there were all these protests and there was a bombing and there was actually a national shutdown during that time where there was like martial law was declared. Um, That's actually where we get May Day. Um, And that's on May 1st of 1926 is actually when Ford announced exactly 40 years after that Haymarket bombing Mm. that they were going to move to the 40 hour work week, which protesters 40 years earlier had been pushing for. And and some people died. Yeah, and there's still speculation as to whether the police did the bombing, whether it was anarchist. Like, I mean, it's it's a really interesting story to dig into uh, and to learn more about. Well, talk about the choice that you made in writing of the book to focus not on helping the reader change the collective culture in their business or industry, but rather on changing themselves. Yeah, so often we see these books that are about bigger society changes, which is needed. But I feel like the gap that we often see is that I, as an individual, feel like it's so overwhelming and big. I don't know what I can do in my individual life. And so the shift we're really seeing in books is that the old industrialist model of here's the prescription, here's the five steps, do these five steps and you'll succeed, uh, is really we're moving away from that. Uh, Because there's nuance to us. There's diversity. We aren't those machines that get plugged in where we can just enter code in and all of a sudden we can do whatever that book says. So on one side, we have this prescription-based model of books, but then on the other side, we have these kind of woo-woo, um, create a vision board, manifest it to the universe, and then you know get your trip to Hawaii. Um, <laughs> and, and that's just not, like both of those have truths to them. Mm. Um, but when we look at the new model of books, it's more of a menu-based option where we say, okay, we're going to learn because we're smart. We're going to have... Um, 
actual intelligent design for ourselves where we can say, I'm going to do some experiments. I'm going to learn over time what worked, what didn't work and Mm. adjust and adapt and change. And so when we start with the individual to your question, uh, that change starts internally. And so the flow that I've seen in my own work and the the case studies I looked at at the research is we start internally with our internal inclinations. Mm. What are our natural tendencies? Where do we naturally find ourselves maybe lacking? Not from a pass fail standpoint. Again, that's the industrialist saying it's it's one way or the other, but from a, hey, where's our starting point here? Uh, If we start internally, then the work that we eventually do is going to be more aligned than if we just start with the productivity. So then we move from the internal into the slowing down and allow our brains to be optimized, to be stronger, instead of that old model of saying we're going to be stressed out all week and then we're going to just barely (laughs) recover on the weekend and then we're going to be stressed out all week and just Mm. run repeat and being reactionary. So no, we're starting with slowing down first and then when we're actually going to go kill it, we do better and more creative work because we've aligned our insides with the slowing down within our brain to then do the very best possible work when we are working. Mm, I want to dig into some of those a little bit more deeply, uh, the inclinations, the slowing down, et cetera. Um, why, Joe, is prioritizing sleep and exercise necessary to productive work? I mean, some of that is obvious, but what what did your research uncover? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a number of amazing TED Talks that are out there on sleep. And uh, when you look at the neuroscience and the research, there's just so much that teaches us about how the brain recuperates through sleep. Uh, I get eight to nine hours of sleep every single night. And I have a seven-year-old and 10-year-old, two daughters. I'm a single parent and I still make that a priority. Even in the middle of this book launch, when I could say, hey, there's lots of reasons that I should sleep less. I should be responding to emails. But that Mm. recovery time and optimizing our brain actually makes us do better work. Um, There's actually an interesting study out of uh, Minnesota that looked at student success based on sleep. And they actually found that if you had a C student in math, if they got one extra hour of sleep a night consistently, they would automatically become a B student. And that if you wanted to turn that C student into an A student, get them two extra hours of sleep. And they found across the board um, that statistically, basically every hour of extra sleep they got, they would go up a grade level. Wow! And so we see it in you know kids with, with their student success. We see it with adults. Um, we're chronically underslept. And I go into a, a bunch of that data to look at this 30-year study of health outcomes um, that when we're mm. underslept, it creates more stress in our body. It creates more of a reactionary approach to our work and our life. And then we don't get any of the outcomes that we want. Uh, our brain can't talk to the other parts of our brain when we're going so fast and we're stressed out and maxed out. Mm. You, you mentioned internal uh, inclinations earlier. What have you found to be the ones that repeatedly predict success? Like what, what specifically can we look to from those you've interviewed and, and studied yeah. So so the research as well as case studies point to three internal inclinations that top performers have. Uh, and so the first one is curiosity. The second one is an outsider perspective. And the third one is an ability to move on it. Uh, mm. So let's dig into each of those a little bit. So curiosity. Uh, you know, when, when we're kids, uh, we're curious about everything. Uh, you know, I have a seven-year-old and 10-year-old. It's like, you know, when they see their first rainbow when they were two or whatever age, their minds are blown because they're trying to figure out, is this regular? Like, does this happen every day? Is this like a sunset or is this just a unique thing? When they see their first car accident, they're like, what the heck is that? Like, mm. I've never seen a car get you know blown up like that. And they're trying to figure out, is this normal everyday stuff or is this something that's outside of the norm? And then at a certain point, we stop doing that. 
even just the other day, uh, my daughters were playing outside and my nieces were with them who are three and five. So four girls under the age of 10 playing outside, lots of squealing and glitter and unicorns and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and then it got really quiet, which, you know, when I'm watching kids and it gets quiet, you got to go investigate that. Mm. And so I, I go outside and they're all standing around this dead mouse and I'm just listening to them. And they're like, how do you think that mouse died? Is an owl going to eat that mouse? Should we bury the mouse? Should we put it in the forest? Should Aww. we give it a funeral? <laughs> like all these questions, you know, yeah. but, but we lose that and, and effectively leaders, they enter into their work with creativity and curiosity. So imagine you do a Facebook ads campaign and you spend, you know, beyond your normal budget in that and you get lots of impressions, but no sales from it. You know, your ego may say, oh, what a failure. I'm a bad leader. I can't believe this happened. I wasted all this money for the company or for myself. But an effective leader is going to be curious and say, okay, what did we learn about our audience here? What did we learn about our copy? What can we take away from this from a curiosity standpoint that this is revealing something about a shift that's different from how we thought things were going to be? Hmm. You know, I don't know if I've ever articulated it quite this way, but you you brought up a thought, a memory in in why I started this podcast. I, I had frustrations around people that I saw who did not read with any regularity or with intention. And I was frustrated that more people didn't exhibit this curiosity the way I did. And so, so in large part, this podcast began out of my frustration that of not seeing as many people curious about things they didn't know that I, that I thought should be. And my hope was to, to bring them a easy to consume way to get more curious fast. Yeah. Well, when you think about reading, it's like you have people that have spent, you know, I've spent the last 15 years helping people work less, make more, live the lives they want. So, and then you get this, you know, book you can read in a week that brings together 15 years of knowledge. Mm. And then, you know, you read somebody else's book and, and they've got a lifetime of knowledge they put into it, that it's such a way to speed up your own progress. If you say, where do I want to head and how can I, you know, read to actually get to that spot? You know, I actually wrote a book about it, too. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Does the title rhyme? <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, it does. Yeah. Well, uh, Joe, why do we feel the need to constantly be accessible? And how is it impacted our, our personal and professional lives? So when I ask that question, I kind of know a part of the answer. And I know that these mobile devices and apps have mechanisms that cause us to become addicted to them if we, if we allow that. But, but what else have you seen apart from that? Yeah, I think that right now there's something really unique happening in um, kind of adulthood in general, where we're seeing a need to feel perfect in almost every arena or optimized in almost every arena. Mm. Um, and actually, the other day I was talking with my sister about it. She she lives in my same neighborhood and our kids go to a school a couple blocks away. Um, so we walk to school every morning to drop off the kids. And she was talking about as a stay at home mom, how she feels all this pressure to be perfect in every single area, even mm. though she's not really a, a person that tends to go that way. And I was thinking about it and I said to her, you know, being raised in the 80s and 90s, so much was around the self-esteem movement, making sure kids felt accepted and loved, which was a needed swing. I mean, compared mm. to the World War II generation that was like, oh, kids exist, don't even talk to them oftentimes. <laughs> you know, we needed that swing from the hippies to, you know, hug your kids, love your kids, all of that. Yeah. But what that created was that Everybody feels they need to be good enough, smart enough, and have everyone love them. <laughs> and so then in every arena, we feel like, hey, I should be like 
a gold star in every arena. And, and so how that carries over is an immense sense of pressure for perfection on this generation of adults. And so when we think about that, whether we think about it with our kids or our friends, that idea that we need to be perfect and keep a perfect image adds such a pressure compared to being able to say, you know what, I'm going to teach you kids that I fail, I screw up, but I'm going to teach you how we actually can recover from that failure and how to do that so that by the time they leave their childhood, they don't say, wow, dad was such a perfect parent. Instead, they say, wow, dad did the best he could. And when he didn't, he apologized, he worked through it, he made sure that he listened to our emotions. And so when we recognize, hey, we've been set up to feel like we need to be perfect, then we can name that within our social media, within all of the work we do and say, okay, where's my intention? And that's, I think, one of the big things that I've discovered is that so many people are just reactionary to the life that they think they've been handed instead of stepping back and saying, wait a second, do I intentionally want to do this for my life, for my business, for my family, for my recovery on the weekend? Maybe I can recreate things. And, you know, we've seen the pandemic absolutely open up that door for people to say, holy cow, the life I was handed, I do not have to live that anymore. That reminds me of, of Bronnie Ware's work uh, in uh, The Five Regrets of the Dying. I don't know if you've read her memoir, but the, the number one regret is you know people on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd lived a life true to myself rather than living the life everybody else expected me to live. Well, uh, talk a bit about the importance of creating boundaries uh, for a productive work-life balance. And before you answer that, the reason I ask, or one of the reasons I ask, I, I was talking to a group of college students on Wednesday about many of the things that you talk about in your book and the ways that you've managed to create multiple streams of income and, and free up more time. And one of the students said, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that though it sounds like with all these things you've got going on that you're working all the time, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you probably don't. And I'd like to know how you've achieved that. And he was exactly right. And um, I talked about the need for constraints and how I used to work, you know, sun up to sundown when I first went out on my own. But eventually I, I found the value in constraints and how that leads to focus and how that leads to increased productivity as sort of what is it Parkinson's law that says, you know, our work expands at the time that we that we give it. Uh, so talk about the importance of creating boundaries for a productive work life balance that you've experienced and seen firsthand. Well, I think you uh, you must have wrote the chapter about that because you just answered it for me. That, that's amazing. I think all, all the all the things you just said, the the neuroscience, the research, the case studies point to exactly what you just said. That that you know, when we give ourselves less time, um, it forces us to do our best work. I mean, if you are a typical business owner and you decide I'm going to take Fridays off for a while as an experiment. And you typically have 20 big picture things a week to work on. And now you take out 20% of your time. You're not going to see a 20% loss, but you know, say you only can get in 15 things. Are you going to do your worst 15 or your best 15? (laughs) You know, you're going to do your best uh, and you're going to notice where you drop the ball. And that's where giving up the ego and saying, listen, this is data for me. These are the five things that I really shouldn't be doing. Okay. So your trash is piling up. You haven't vacuumed your office. Okay. Maybe you should have hired a cleaning person years ago so that you as the owner of the company isn't taking out your own trash. Uh, Because oftentimes I think how a lot of leaders and and business folks think is, well, if I can do it, uh, I probably do it well because I take myself seriously. And if I can do it, that's going to save me money. But actually, when you look at you're expending energy on learning HTML code or learning how to do this email opt-in or all these other things that people could be outsourced to or systems or other things, that's still an energy spend. Even if you're, quote, saving money, um, it's not the best use of your time. So then when you 
start doing the very best use of your time every single week, week after week, and asking yourself instead of, hey, you know, I could do this, like, why wouldn't I do it? To say, well, why am I allowing myself to do this task? With every task, to be able to say, is this something I really should be doing? So, for example, my director of details, Jess, I can't send her to say, go do this interview with Jeff. You know, that that would, <laughs> you know, you'd cancel the interview. And you'd be like, I want to have Joe on this show. Mm. There's things that only I can do. But then there's a ton of other things that my team can do. And so by allowing my team to do that and setting up those systems, it then allows me to put my very best energy into the things only I can do. You, you reminded me as you were talking, and, and and before I actually say that, I'll say I'll try not to answer the rest of the questions for you. But, but, <laughs> no, please do. <laughs> but as you were talking, I was I was reminded uh, uh, as I look around my neighborhood, and I live in a, a section of a neighborhood where we have fairly decent sized lawns, like an acre, acre and a quarter. You know, the houses aren't right on top of each other. And as I look to many of my neighbors around me. Uh, many of them mow their lawns and it takes, you know, on a riding mower, even on a zero turn mower, it could take, you know, a good hour, hour and a half on a riding mower, probably close to a couple of hours. And I remember the guilt that I felt seven or eight years ago when I first started hiring someone to mow it for me and sort of the uh, awkward looks or down the nose looks from certain people who I won't mention I'm related to who are like, you, you don't mow your own lawn. You pay somebody to, like, when did you, you know, get all uppity or, you know, things like that. I was just like, you know, I, I, I can accomplish so much more in that amount of time. Uh, and that trade off of 60 or $65 or whatever it is I, I pay for that, you know, I could meet with a client and make, you know, 10 times that. hundred percent. And, you know, one of the most common questions I get is, Great. You know, we want the three day weekend. We want to have the four day work week. But what can we actually do right now that's practical? Mm. And, and what you just said, again, answered my question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, is, you know, I often say add one thing to the weekend and take one thing away. And so yeah. doing these experiments where you add something in that, you know, is going to give you life. So that book that's been sitting next to your nightstand and you are just like, I want to read it, but I don't make time for it. You know, schedule two hours on the weekend to read that book. Mm. Or, you know, if you know that there's a friend that every time you see him, you say, let's get together sometime. And that sometime just never comes. Do something that you know is going to give you that life this weekend, but then take away something as well. So hiring the neighbor kid to mow your lawn for this weekend and see, is that something that really takes some stress off you? Get groceries delivered or mm. you know, maybe you have a coffee date scheduled with a friend, but every time you leave that discussion, you feel like trash. Like you can cancel that appointment with your toxic friend. Mm. Um, and so, you know, even like outsourcing your lawn um, to realize, you know, for myself, I realized the same thing where do I want to spend a couple hours on the weekend mowing every single weekend? Mm. No, I hate that so much. <laughs> I would much rather do one more podcast and then pay the neighbor kid yeah. uh, to do that. And so, you know, even today um, I'm looking at my schedule and, you know, I'm hanging out with a couple friends this afternoon and I could go grocery shopping, but I'd much rather hang out with my friends that I haven't seen in a while and go out for an outdoor you know, coffee together. So I'm going to get my groceries delivered. Now, of course, this is a position of privilege, but it's also saying, how am I going to use my time to show up as the best person? Mm. Not just your business. There, you know, a lot of times we always say, well, how's this affect the business? How's this affect the business? If you're a good person, if you're a person that's lower stressed, more creative, more productive, that's just going to help your business. And so I know hanging out with these people is going to make me a better dad. I'm going to have a better weekend. And then by doing that, when I show up on Monday morning, I'm going to be able to absolutely kill it and do the 25 plus podcast interviews I have next week and have the energy and the awareness to be able to show up and do those well. 
Well, uh, Joe, we've got numerous examples uh, from not only this century, but last century of, of influential people who understood the value of slowing down. You talked a bit about slowing down earlier. But why do so many of us end up going back to the industrialist's way of thinking, despite all these examples in front of us? Yeah. So I think that, I mean, there's two sides. I think there's entrepreneurs and then there's people that work in a typical business. Mm. And so uh, I think there's two very different problems that those two types of, of listeners and leaders uh, face. So for the entrepreneur side, it's usually we have so many ideas and we get excited about our work. And I don't, I know that you and I both do work we absolutely love. Mm. And so it's less about, man, I need to run away from this work that I hate. And it's more I'm just so drawn to this work and I see all this potential and opportunity and it often takes over our brains. And so for those folks, having very clear, hard and soft boundaries, um, that's really important. And so, for example, you know, I wrote a book about not working on Friday. I have hard boundaries around if a pre-consulting client says, Joe, I can only work with you on Fridays. I'm not going to do something that's going to be a long-term commitment mm. for working on Fridays. Whereas you know, we're actually recording this on a Friday. So that's a soft boundary where during a book launch, if there's you know a couple people that to me are influential podcasters or interviews that I say, yeah, I'm going to allow that person to take up some of my Friday that's okay. That's a soft boundary. If my business catches on fire on a Friday and just texts me, I'm not going to say, hang on, let it burn till Monday. No, we're <laughs> going to work through that. Um, and that's where we're moving away from that industrialist model of saying, it's always this way. Here's the blueprint. You're a machine. No, it's, you know, we're going to reverse engineer. Why did that fire happen? You know, why mm. was Joe the only one that could solve that? Who needs access to what? So that, you know, on a Friday, Joe doesn't have to put out fires and everyone else on the team can, or like we can have different strategy moving forward mm. for people that are in the typical uh, kind of 40 hour workplace. And maybe they don't own their schedule as much as an entrepreneur. It, it's more of having a conversation with your boss about what does that four day work week look like? What are the key performance indicators of my job role? And could we do a two to three month experiment with a small group of three or four people in that same job role around a four day work week. And, mm. and we can walk through that process if you want to. But that's going to reveal something to you. You're going to either see that you really are working for an industrialist that cares about butts in the chair, or you're going to see, okay, this person's creative. They're innovative. They're moving into the evolutionary model of business that's more organic and lets people grow and change and shift. Um, it's going to tell you do you want to stay there for the long term or do you want to start putting your resumes out somewhere else? And to your point earlier, if you want to broach that subject with your boss, is it now as good a time as any? What with the, the pandemic we're coming out of? Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, I think that, I mean, being po our post-pandemic generation, we have a window of time that we can really say, what are we making out of our society? What are we making out of our work? What are we doing here? The health outcomes, the sleep outcomes, creativity outcomes, pre-pandemic, to me, are not satisfactory for what I expect out of humanity. Uh, we are sicker than we need to be. We are sadder than we need to be. Uh, we are less creative than we need to be. And if we look forward and say, what kind of creative energy do we need for the problems of this next hundred years? We need the most creative, healthy people possible. And the old mm -hmm. way that we worked does not give us that. And so if we're going to move into that, to me, that next evolutionary step within business is to move to the four-day work week. And in a hundred years, we may say, hey, that was a great step at the time just like Henry Ford moving from 10 to 14 hour days. That was a great step at the time, but now we're going to evolve into something else. And so it can continue to change and grow and be experimented with. Mm. But right now, to me, that's the next healthiest step for us and humanity. You know, as someone who's worked for myself for about eight years, it, it did take me the first three or four years to realize, as I alluded earlier, that 
you know, I, I, I control my own schedule. And so if I don't like it, I can change it. And so I started getting serious about, you know, looking at Fridays differently. So a typical Friday, once my podcast interview is done, the day's over. I mean, the workday is, is complete. And, you know, when I, when I say that, I kind of laugh at the same time because I don't consider podcast interviews work. I love doing these. And I know. So, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like work at all, you know, but I mean, it, technically that's what it is. And so, you know, this one's relatively early in the day. And so uh, on a typical Friday, then, you know, at 10 a.m. my time, the weekend begins. So I'm all about that. Um, I want to ask you too, you know, I've, uh, you write about this. I've long believed that, that goals are less about what we achieve than they are about who we become in the process, right? Uh, so, so why should we write, uh, as you put it, to become lists rather than to do lists? Yeah, to me, discovering who we want to become within our business, but within our life as well, is one of the most important questions that we can we can examine. And and to me, the idea of becoming isn't an end goal. It's not like, okay, I'm going to achieve all of these things. I'm going to do these things and then I'm done. Uh, you know, just the word itself to do means I check it off the list to become that insinuates that we're going to have an ongoing process there, that we're going to have an ongoing evolution of ourselves. The person I am today is different than the person that I was five years ago. That's why I never do five year goals, because I would have played way too small. You know, I look at the next six to 12 months and say, who am I becoming in this time? And so to say I'm entering into this book launch and here's the things I know I need to do to set myself for the, up for the most success. And also understanding there's so many things that will unfold that are completely out of my control. Uh, and that's okay you know, <laughs> to just allow those things to unfold and say, I'm going to become who I need to become within my own power while letting go of the 95% of things that I have zero power or influence over. Mm. Well, Joe, uh, this has been a lot of fun, but I do have a couple of questions I want to ask you, uh, not directly related to the book, if, if I may. Before I get to that, though, I want to give you a chance to share anything else from the book you want to make sure that we that we know about that I didn't ask. Yeah, I would say we, we covered a lot around kind of the slowing down, the internal inclinations. The other side of it is when we do work and do that best work in the four days or fewer, um, there's so many options around the neuroscience of how we work best. And, and so even um, the University of Illinois uh, found that doing a one minute break every 20 minutes those micro breaks stops vigilance decrement. So vigilance, how well we pay attention, decrement breaking down over time. And so there's a bunch of research that I talk about in the book that to me is so essential to say, okay, here's the menu of what just the last couple of years of research has showed us about the brain of how we can work in different ways, how we can look at our sprint type, which is like our personality type, but it's actually, there's unique ways to sprint. It's not just this one way of batching. And so mm. when we get to that killing it, we really want to focus on let's use that research to get more done in that shorter period of time and then set some very clear end caps and say the work week is over i give myself permission to be done and now i'm going to enter into slowing down like any good nonfiction book does there are a number of books that you cite and and even recommend along the way in uh, thursday is the new friday give us a bit of insight into your history joe with reading how would you say a habit of intentional and consistent reading has impacted your your success. Yeah, I would say that the big shift for me, like I've always been a reader. I've been someone that loves new information and not mm. even just saying I'm going to read business books. I think there's a lot of value yeah. in finding other nonfiction um, that, you know, even, you know, people's biographies or different right. things like that, that you just pick up things from outside of your field. Uh, the biggest shift for me is I take notes 
on the back cover of the book while I'm reading of clear action items I'm going to implement mm. before I read the next book. Um, so often we consume, consume, consume. But if we don't apply, it's the same as eating a bunch of food and never exercising. And so I want to consume, but then I also want to make sure I take action. And so finding that flow between reading and then action and making sure that I'm implementing it, giving things to my team, that's where I've seen the biggest results from it instead of just consuming without taking that action. And if you want help on how better to do that, read my book. Called, no, I'm just um, <laughs> what are you saying? No, <laughs> do read your book. It's a great book. <laughs> uh, what, what's a book or two, uh, Joe, that you've encountered over the course of your life and career that you would say is either one you go back to from time to time, or, or if not that, you, you, you can say has had a huge impact on your life and career? Yeah, I, I'm going to give you one from my career and one from my personal life mm. because they've both been so impactful. Uh, and to me, both are both sides of my life are so important. So I'd say the business book that to me has been the most influential is The One Thing uh, by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. Um, that idea of what's that one thing that I can do now that's going to make everything else easier is a question I ask myself year after year. Uh, in 2018, I answered that question with getting a traditionally published book and having it be a New York Times bestselling book. If that can happen, it's going to make things easier. Um, so doing everything I can to make sure that I understand that, to put that time in so that I have that lens of, hey, I have five minutes right now between interviews. What can I do? Okay, it's the lens of getting that book launched. So I'd say the one thing would be that that book for me. Um, and then on the personal side, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer has just been such a helpful book in regards to realizing that at my core, who I am is awareness of my awareness and that mm. my emotions, my past, my physical body, those are all things that change. You know, my emotions, how I am right now versus how I am in an hour or two months ago is completely different. So I'm not my emotions. Uh, you know, my past changes and I there's future that hasn't happened yet. So that's not me. <laughs> it's like, who am I? And just that idea of at my core, I'm awareness. And mm. how do I allow these heavy emotions and memories to, to flow through me and not get stuck um, has just been a total game changer for the way that I approach, especially difficult situations. Mm, that second book I, I'm not familiar with. So you've just prompted me to add uh, a book to my to my reading list. So thank you for that. Excellent. And I've led a book club discussion on the one thing where we had a chance to have Jay Papasan Join us for the discussion. That was a huge treat. Love that book. Um, well, what would you say, Joe, uh, in, in sort of closing, uh, in conclusion, if you will, uh, what would you say is ahead for you and your team that you're excited about now that the book is out? And I know, you know, it's been written for a while. Uh, you're, you're surely already thinking about the next items, right? Yeah, I think... You know, so much went into this that uh, I'm going to take my own advice and I'm going to slow down for a little <laughs> bit. And, uh, you know, this year, you know, outside of the book launch has been really about cleaning up systems. Um, we switched over to some other kind of things and it's really been reinvesting into kind of the infrastructure of my business. Um, and then, you know, we, we've had a lot of changes in our team in regards to people's personal lives post-pandemic. Mm. And so I think we're going to have a time of just taking a breath as a team um, and saying, you know, creatively, what do we want to do next? I mean, I always have ideas of kind of that next level thing. Mm. Um, you know, like the idea of having a TV show around the four-day work week, like that sounds interesting to me, but I'm going to do some investigation. I'm going to talk to, you know, friends that have TV shows and, mm. you know, learn that process of, 
of what that would look like. Who knows if that'll happen? But kind of the flow I typically have is, you know, when my plate gets full, then I start to work on the systems to take things off my plate and make sure the team can then keep that all going without me having to put in the work. And then once that's free and I have that extra energy and time, then I go after kind of that next big thing that will kind of multiply the business. You know, uh, before I wrap, I want to I want to hit on that for a second because I think there's a lot of value in that. I think more people should practice that. I learned that from uh, one of one of my mentors, Dan Miller, about uh, you know evaluating at the end of the year. You know, what are you doing that ne- needs to go? What's that five or ten percent that needs to go? I did this in um, the end of 2019, going into 2020. Now, I didn't know that a pandemic was ahead uh, when I when I made these decisions. So. So take that into account. Uh, but I let go of a couple of things that allowed me to make room for more public speaking and in-person workshops that uh, that then went away a couple of months later. Uh, but then that opened the door for me able to be a, uh, be able to write a book, right? And and had I not made those decisions, doing that would have been a lot tougher. And I'd have seen my wife less and my family less and all those things. So yeah, I think it's very important uh, whenever that time is right for you. For me, it's often at the end of the year to make those distinctions of what needs to go. Uh, and where do I need to put my focus now? Well, the book again is called uh, Thursday is the New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend Time Doing What You Want. I think it's a book you should get now. And if it happens to uh, serendipitously find its way into the hands of your coworkers and your boss, then that'd be cool too. Uh, his name is uh, Joe Sanok. Joe, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciated having you. Oh, yeah. It's been really awesome to be here. Thanks so much, Jeff. I've got my copy of Joe's book and a second copy I'm going to give away. All you need to do to be eligible to win it is to share about this episode on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, one of those places. Share the episode, which is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 397 for episode 397. And then be sure and tag me. I'm on most platforms at the Jeff Brown. And you can tag Joe Sanok as well. Again, just share this episode, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 397 on social media. Tag me and Joe if you like, and I'll randomly select someone by Friday to win a copy of Joe's book. More on this episode, including a brief summary and the resources and links we discussed today can be found at that URL I mentioned just a moment ago. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 397 for episode 397. And if you would be so kind as to consider our sponsor, that would be great too. Again, it's ScriptCo at ScriptCo.com, S-C-R-I-P-T-C-O.com. There you can check out how much you could be saving on your medications. That's ScriptCo.com. And remember to use READ25 to get $25 off your initial membership. Next week, of course, is a holiday week here in the States, but that doesn't mean we won't have another episode for you. We'll be joined by Meredith Bell next time, author of Strong for Performance, creating a coaching culture with learning and development programs that stick. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 